Well, good morning again. Thanks for being with us. It's a joy to keep our schedule here as we're working through the Psalms for the summer. So we've got 21 this Sunday, 22 next Sunday, and we will end with Psalm 23 on September 4th, I think is the first Sunday of September. After that, we will start a series in the Minor Prophets. So I'm really excited to get into that. We'll do Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, and uh, really anxious to get into some of those uh, prophetic texts. It'll be good for us as a church. So this morning, we're going to Psalm 21. This is where we find ourselves in our journey through the Psalms. And what we're going to see in 21 is a lot of answers to the prayers that were made in Psalm 20. So it's not that all of the Psalms are sequential or uh, in order of time necessarily, chronological, but these two have a unique pairing as we see many of the things that David prayed in Psalm 20 being specifically answered in 21. And also, as we begin, I just want to remind you of what we said last week, that there is, in these texts, this connection between the king and his people. So as the king goes, so goes the people. And there is this commonality, this solidarity, we said, between the desires of the king's heart and the desires of the people, and he leads in those areas. And that's going to be important once again today as we look at what the king does in the strength of God, how the people respond to those actions, and how God has laid all of this out. This psalm is similar also just in its structure, where the verse 1 and verse 13, which are the first and last verses, have pretty much the same theme, and that is worshiping God for his strength, for his power that has been revealed. Just real quickly, Psalm 1, the king is rejoicing in the strength that has been given to him from the Lord. And verse 13, the Lord is being exalted and worshiped because of the strength by the people. So first the king, then the people. Okay, let you just keep that framework in mind as we work through this text. It'll be helpful, especially as we come to the end. So if you're not there yet, please turn to Psalm 21. We'll read this together and we'll begin for the morning. Psalm 21. O Lord, in your strength the king rejoices. And in your salvation how greatly he exalts. You have given him his heart's desire and have not withheld the request of his lips. For you meet him with rich blessings. You set a crown of fine gold upon his head. He asked life of you, and you gave it to him, length of days forever and ever. His glory is great through your salvation, splendor and majesty you bestow upon him. For you make him most blessed forever, you make him glad with the joy of your presence. For the king trusts in the Lord, and through the steadfast love of the Most High, he shall not be moved. Your hand will find out all your enemies, your right hand will find out those who hate you. You will make them as a blazing oven when you appear. The Lord will swallow them up in his wrath, and fire will consume them. For you destroy their descendants from the earth and their offspring from among the children of man. Though they plan evil against you, though they devise mischief, they will not succeed. For you will put them to flight. You will aim at their faces with your bows. Be exalted, O Lord, in your strength. We will sing and praise your power. Let's pray together as we begin. Father in heaven, thank you that you have established a king. And even as we see now in the history of the nation of Israel, there were kings 
who did honor you, who did obey your law, not perfectly. And as we look at the failure in many ways of the human kings, Lord, we are discouraged. And yet hope comes in the advent of our great king, Jesus Christ, who obeyed your law, whose desires were aligned with yours, whose purpose was to obey your will, all of the areas that the human kings failed in, Christ accomplished. And so, Father, this morning, as we look at the characteristics of this king, as we see the displays of your power as you work through your anointed, I ask that you'd give us understanding that you would give us insight and, and more than this, Lord, give us hope. We need a king. <laughs> we need someone we can follow. We need someone who does not fail as they set the example for us. And so, God, encourage our hearts. Come by your spirit and give grace in the preaching and grace in the hearing in all of this so that your church is strengthened. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You'll see if you're a note taker there on the back of your bulletin that the title of the sermon is The Past, Present, and Future Strength. And that's really what we see here in Psalm 21. That's the pattern that I'm following here, that the worship that is being given to God by the king and then by the people is motivated by something. And you can see that as we move through, that because of the displays of God's power, because of how he has revealed his strength through his king, to his people, that worship is the result of that. So this is the whole theme of the text. Verse 1 through 6 tells us the past demonstrations of God's strength. You see that in all the past tense verbs. For you have met him. He asked and you gave it to him. All in the past. Now that doesn't mean that we can't take confidence in these things, but for the sake of our time together, that is the past display of God's strength. Verse 7 shows us, I think, the present display of the power of God as he sustains this king, as he gives him everything that he needs to be stable. And then verses 8 through 13 tell us of the future power of God that is revealed through this king as he carries out the judgments and punishments on the wicked. And all of these things, past, present, and future, promote the worship of God in the people of God. So that's the pattern it's the structure that we're taking. So let's start at the beginning and look at the past demonstration of God's strength. So verse 1, O Lord, in your strength the king rejoices, and in your salvation how greatly he exalts. Now you're going to notice that this first section of the Psalms, verses 1 through 6 specifically, are dominated by the theme of God's power at work. The, the rejoicing of the king his worship of God, his thankfulness, is not because he is really great. It's not because the king has accomplished all these things. The power of God that has been displayed in this king's life, in his military conquest, in the establishment of his kingdom, all of those things promote the worship of God. It is not as if the king is all that great. And we know this because he's a human king. But this whole section is meant to point to the fact that the power of God is what is worthy of worship. The power of God displayed through his king is what 
produces this worship and this praise. And we're going to see this all through the psalm, especially these bookends, the first and the last part. Now, depending on your experience, your background, maybe what church context you have or have not been in, you may not remember that as God's people, both here and now, we are called to praise God in all things, for all things. So yeah, of course, that's simple. Well, just hang on. In all things, for all things. It's pretty easy for us to bring worship and praise to God in response to the blessings of God, his goodness, his provision, right? And that's good, and we should do that because that's where all those things come from. It's really easy to praise God when things have been going really well. The scriptures tell us, however, that God is not only worthy of worship when he is blessing, but he is worthy of worship in the display of his power. It's okay to praise God for being a powerful God. The scriptures tell us this. We sing songs like this. Isaac Watts wrote the song, I Sing the Mighty Power of God. And he goes on to describe God's power in creation, his power in redemption. Charles Wesley says this, God of all power and truth and grace, which shall from age to age endure, whose word when heaven and earth shall pass, remains and stands forever sure. The worship of God for the display of his power is right and it is good. We do not have only a gentle, quiet, compassionate God. We do. But he is also a God of power. And that is what is being worshipped in Psalm 21. God has displayed his power to the king. He has displayed his power to the people. And the response that they have is to worship him. Then as we keep moving through verses 2 and 6, through that section, we see the demonstrations of God's power. Maybe in the recent past or in the distant past, but nevertheless, this is what has happened that is producing this kind of worship and praise. So what has God done? What are some of the things that we see here? Well, he gave the king the desire of his heart. Last week in Psalm 20, we saw David pray for this very thing. Uh, I think it's verse 4. Yeah, Psalm 20, verse 4. May he grant your heart's desire and fulfill all your plans. And now we come to Psalm 21, and we see that that request has been answered in the life of the king. And what does that tell us about the life of the king? We said last week that God is not in the habit of answering prayers and fulfilling desires if those prayers and desires are contrary to the will of God. So when we come to this text in Psalm 21 and see that the prayer was answered, this means that the king's heart was in line with God. His requests were in line with the will of God. He was walking according to the law of God. And so not only is this a demonstration of God's power in answering prayer, but it's a demonstration of faithfulness for God to hear and answer the requests of this king's heart. And that should encourage us as we pray, as we bring requests. If your life is in alignment with the word of God, if you are seeking to follow his will, it should not be a surprise when God answers your prayer. Well, this isn't a formula. This is no guarantee. It's not as if you pray uh, this many minutes a day and the content of your prayer is this and you uh, are on your knees for at least half of that time. It's not like that. God's answering of prayers has less to do with our 
praying as it does with his covenant-keeping faithfulness. He has promised to hear and answer the prayers of the righteous. So don't, don't be shocked when God answers prayer. But also we ought not to presume upon God to answer prayer. If we walk according to the law of God, if our heart is set on obeying the will of God, then we should anticipate God's answering of prayers. Now the language of verse 3 might seem a little bit less common to us when in verse 3 he says, For you meet him with rich blessings. He set a crown of gold upon his head. Now there was this thing in the ancient Near East that when a king was traveling, when he was out or when he returned, that people would come out and meet him and when they did, they would give gifts. Okay, they came out and they met the king and they would give him, it could be livestock, it could be servants, it could be food, whatever, a crown, it could be gold and gifts like this. The point was that in coming out to meet the king, you would give gifts as a sign of allegiance, as a sign of you are not at enmity with this king, but you are affirming his kingship. You'd come out and do this. So we see actually starting back in the very early Old Testament. You remember in Genesis, I think it's 14, Abram goes out to rescue Lot. Remember this? Lot gets taken by the wicked, nasty people around him. And uh, Abram goes, we better go get him. So he grabs 300 of his men and he goes and he rescues Lot. And on the way back they meet this guy named Melchizedek, who is the king of Salem. And it uses the same language where he comes out to meet him and there's a blessing pronounced. Gifts are given. And all throughout the history of the kings we see this. Even to the New Testament, what happens when the wise men come and meet King Jesus? They bring gifts. Okay, this is really common language. So in Psalm 21.3, when we see that the Lord meets the king with rich blessing, we should see this as the Lord's commitment to his anointed. He's on the same side. It's a sign of affirmation. And God is demonstrating his strength and his power to the king by saying, I'm going to come out and meet you, and I know that you are following in my plan. You are walking according to my law. And he gives him blessing. And don't get hung up on the crown of gold. It, just, it's, it represents value and purity. So the Lord meets the king. They are aligned. Again, this just gives testimony, but we were just saying that the king's life is in alignment with the Lord's. Now notice verse 5. His glory, this is talking about the king, the king's glory is great through your salvation, splendor and majesty you bestow upon him. And I'm just pointing out again that the worth of the king, the value of the king is not in the king himself. It comes from God. The word bestow just means to give, right? To give as in a gift. So the king is given glory. He is given splendor and majesty. We just read this in Psalm 96 this morning, that in the Lord are splendor and majesty, and God gives that now to his anointed king. He bestows upon him this blessing. We see similar language of majesty and this kind of stuff in Psalm 8. Remember this when it says that God made mankind to be a little lower than the angels, but he has crowned him with glory and honor and given him dominion. Same kind of language where God is the one putting worth and value on his people. And in regard to the king, there's certainly uh, dignity, there is worth, there is value to being the Lord's anointed, but it does not intrinsically come from within the king. It's not his own possession. God doesn't find a king and say, ooh, 
you're pretty glorious, you're pretty majestic, I think I'll make you my king. No, it is all God's work. He bestows this upon his king. Same language used in the New Testament refer to Jesus. Remember Philippians 2? Really, really common passage. I hope you know it. But what does it say there? Paul says that after Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection, that God, what? Has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name. That's the same language as Psalm 21, where God has given him this name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee bows, every tongue confesses. This is a sign of God's approval, both of Christ and in Psalm 21, of this king. God displays his power by exalting his king. Now, verse 6 has some familiar language in the context of our psalm as well. For you make him most blessed forever. You make him glad with the joy of your presence. Where else have we recently seen joy and the presence of God combined? Remember this? This was back to 4th of July weekend uh, when we preached Psalm 16. The end of Psalm 16 says, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. Okay, and when we did that sermon, we said that, and the New Testament agrees, that this fullness of joy in the presence of God is referring to resurrection life, eternal life. And I think the same is true here in Psalm 21. Yes, we are seeing what God has done in the display of his power, but part of this establishment, part of this blessing that God has given guarantees that God will forever satisfy his king. And how does he do that? He does it with his presence. Last week, in verse 2 of Psalm 20, it said, May he send you help from the sanctuary and give you support from Zion. And we said those two things meant God's power and his presence. And here again, we see in verse 6 that God satisfies his king with his very presence. So those are some past examples of the power of God that are producing worship in the king's heart. Now, verse 7 is a present display, I think, of the power of God. Read verse 7 of Psalm 21 with me again. For the king trusts in the Lord, and through the steadfast love of the Most High, he shall not be moved. Now, remember, the king has seen answers to his prayers. He has seen God bless the work of his hands. He has seen his life come into conformity with what the law of God has said. And verse 7 tells us why God has done these things. Yes, it was to display his own power. God is after his own recognition, his own fame. And he does this often by displaying his power through his people so that we, or in this case the king, receives these benefits and glorifies God. Okay, So yes, this is a display. But also, there is an aspect of God's covenant-keeping nature. We're going to draw attention to this a couple times this morning. Look at the first word of verse 7. It's for or because. Same word. Because the king trusts in the Lord, he has shown faithfulness. This is the way that a covenant works. Okay, When God makes a promise to his people, the promise comes with expectations. We see this all the way back to the Sinai covenant. When God is talking to the nation of Israel through Moses... In Deuteronomy chapter 11, verse 26, this is what we read. So Moses is telling the people on behalf of God, here's what's up. Deuteronomy eleven twenty-six. 26. See, I am setting before you today a blessing and a curse. 
the blessing if you obey the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you today, and the curse if you do not obey the commandments of the Lord your God, but turn aside from them. This is standard covenant language. Blessings for obedience, punishment, or the Bible uses the word curse, for disobedience. That's as simple as it gets. Blessing for obedience, punishment for disobedience. And the king has experienced the covenant blessing of the Lord as he walks in obedience to the Lord. This is the same thing we were just talking about where it's not a vending machine. It's not as if you just put in the right conduct, the right words, the right prayer, the right worship, and guarantee you get this result. However, while God is not a vending machine, he is a God of covenant-keeping faithfulness. So when his word says, if you walk according to my statutes, if you obey my law, if your heart is being more and more aligned with mine, then I will hear and answer your prayers. That's what it means. So God demonstrates this faithfulness to the king in part because he wants to demonstrate his power, but also because it is in his nature to honor the covenant that he has established with his people. Blessing for obedience, punishment for disobedience. And as a present demonstration of God's strength and power to this king, he blesses him and establishes the king with his steadfast love so that he will not be shaken. And you say, okay, that's great for the king, but just remember what I said. As goes the king, so goes the people. And we're going to tie all of this together here in a couple minutes. But now, let's look at the rest of the psalm. Verses 8 through 13. And we're going to see the future displays of God's power, what he is going to do. So follow along, starting in verse 8. Your hand will find out all your enemies. Your right hand will find out those who hate you. You will make them as a blazing oven when you appear. The Lord will swallow them up in his wrath and consume them. You will destroy their descendants from the earth and their offspring from among the children of man. Let me point out a couple things as we look at this section. First of all, there's obviously some interpretive challenges. And some of the challenges come because of the switch between first-person and second-person language, right? As we look through this, your hand will do this, your hand will do this, then he switches, the Lord will swallow them up and whatever. So we got to ask, who's being talked about? Who's talking? Who are they addressing? Is this uh, talking about God and, and his hand being extended and his judgment on the nations. This is talking about the king who's going to operate this way or maybe the king who's operating on behalf of God. I think the answer to those questions is yes. We just said that God's power is displayed through the king. The whole section of 20 and 21 has been referring to the king. So my personal take on this is that when we read this section... It is God's anointed king acting on behalf of God to uphold the law of God. And I don't think that violates any interpretive principle. I mean, you can, you can look at this and say, well, this is, this is clearly God who's doing the work. And I'd say, yep, totally agree. How does he do that? Sometimes it's just miraculous. Sometimes it's just a raw display of his power, more often than not, his power is displayed through his people, through his king. And that's what I'm saying is going on here in the last half of this psalm, that through God's anointed king, he is doling out the judgment on the wicked. Now, another interpretive challenge here might be 
um, maybe not a challenge, I guess. I'll just say this is something to notice, that this is every bit a part of God's covenant-keeping faithfulness as his blessings for obedience. So all throughout this section, verses 8 through 10 and 11, really through 12, this is God's righteous, just, and correct response to the breaking of his covenant. Okay, so just as we said earlier that the blessing the king experienced because of covenant faithfulness and obedience, we're seeing this again, just the other side of the covenant in this part of the thing. God's punishment of the wicked, his destruction of their offspring, the frustration of their plans, we have to see this as a part of God's covenant-keeping faithfulness. We often think about God's faithfulness in terms of his goodness towards us, and this is right so let's say something, something happens, your family, or our, we'll just use our church as an example, then nobody feels goofy, right? So let's say our church experiences just a tremendous season of, of favor from the Lord, whatever that might be. Someone donates something or does something or we just see the Spirit working and we would say, oh, isn't God faithful? And we say that all the time and that's absolutely true. But you have to remember, and that's why I draw attention to this, that God's judgment of wickedness is every bit a part of his covenant-keeping faithfulness as his blessing for obedience. This is not as if God is honoring obedience and says, well, I'm a covenant-keeping God, I'm faithful, so I'm going to do the good thing over here. And then when people disobey, he loses his mind and becomes uncontrollable or something. The fact that God punishes wickedness is totally in keeping with the covenant-keeping nature of who he is. He has to do this. Because if he does not judge wickedness, if he does not come through and honor his word and punish sin, then you cannot count on him to honor obedience. A God who fails to keep his word is no God. That's a man. But God does keep his word. God is faithful to his covenant. And Psalm 21 lays out for us in vivid detail what happens to the enemies of God when his covenant faithfulness is focused in judgment. This is not just some kind of temporary time out where God figures out what to do. Look at some of the language that is used in this psalm. Your hand will find out your enemies. You will make them as a blazing oven. So you know, in, in judgment, fire is a consumption. You know this in the Bible. The Lord will swallow them up. Fire will consume them. You will destroy their descendants. This is total and utter destruction that the king will dole out on behalf of God. And I'm saying that this judgment, this punishment of sin is totally in keeping with God's covenant-keeping nature. And in fact, we ought to say that this is a demonstration of God's faithfulness. just want you to have that category because we are so prone to use faithfulness in the positive sense, again, which we should, but it is also a part of God's character to demonstrate his faithfulness by doing what he says and punishing the wicked. I don't know if you've ever had a conversation with somebody that really struggles with the Old Testament. They just can't wrap, and maybe this is you, you can't wrap your mind around the fact that God would condone the amount of killing 
in the Old Testament. And because people don't understand the covenant-keeping nature of God, that when his covenant is broken, when people reject the law of God, when they say no thank you to God's standard and rule, in his faithfulness, he must punish that sin. This is not God flying off the handle, losing his temper, and just acting like you and I would act. This is a steadfast, controlled, measured, ordained response to wickedness. This is what we're seeing in Psalm 21. And I'm just telling you, this perfectly aligns with God's covenant-keeping nature. I don't want you to think about God's faithfulness only in terms of the positive, but remember that in his faithfulness, he judges sin. His response to the breaking of the covenant is measured, and you and I can take great comfort in that. <laughs> We're pretty quick to affirm God's power. You know, he's, he's all-powerful. God can do whatever he wants. That's right, he can. So aren't you glad that he's not out of control? Aren't you glad that his response to sin is in keeping with his covenant and it's not just sporadic? There's a great comfort for us to have here. And as I was thinking about these verses, I'm always asking myself questions. And I hope you do the same thing when you're reading the Bible. You need to ask, what's going on here? Why is this written? And so I was just asking myself when I got to this point, why why is this here? I mean, why don't I on Sunday just stretch out the first half of the psalm and say, oh, I guess we didn't have time to get to the punishment. Oh, we'll move on. (laughs) Why did I do that? Well, for one thing, that wouldn't be very good preaching. And for another, look at verses 11 and 12. Though they plan evil against you, though they devise mischief, they will not succeed. The they is the, the wicked, the enemies of God that we talked about earlier. For you will put them to flight, You will aim at their faces with your bows. There's a lot of wickedness in the world. There was a lot of wickedness in the world in David's time. It's just different wickedness now. And the comfort for this, the reason we have to understand this, is because you and I need hope that things are not always going to be unjust. All of us have this sense of Justice, this, this, uh, when things don't go what, the right way, we get kind of angsty. We get kind of, mm, that just doesn't feel right. If you're reading a, a book and the main character is obviously the good guy and he gets wrongfully imprisoned, you kind of go, ooh, I don't like that. Someone needs to do something about that. Break him out. We have this God-given sense that when things go against his law, we should bother us. And so we read through about this punishment of the wicked and we read that all these people are planning evil. And you say, well, it says it's planning evil against you and you just said it was the king, so I don't really get how this... Okay, remember this. The king is the representative of his people. And in this case, the people of God, which we are a part of, and so therefore, we can look around the world and you know right now that there are so many examples of things that are contrary to the word of God. So many things. I don't need to probably even say anything. I'll mention a couple. But you know, you can look around. The sexual revolution that started decades ago with the rise of feminism and liberalism 
has reached new unspeakable benchmarks with the gender identity stuff. The rejection of anything they view as restrictive or or about violence. There's so much promotion of violence in our culture. Video games and movies and media and now we see these mass shootings being carried out because people experience this in virtual reality and they want to see what it's like in real life. And it's being promoted. Or how about just the rampant selfishness? Now you just, you do you. You live your truth. Unless that contradicts my truth, then you better not live your truth. Right? All of these things that are being promoted and endorsed and encouraged in our culture, what do we do with that? How do you respond to those things? You know what the Bible tells us? Verses 11 and 12. This stuff's not going to go on forever. God's king, his anointed, his chosen one is going to drive back the wicked. He is going to punish the evildoers. And here is where the connection between the king of Israel and Jesus Christ becomes so important. There was a time in Israel's history where this was happening, where people were rising up against the people of God simply because they were the people of God. And God says, I'm not going to let that happen forever. And he uses his king to defeat his enemies. And the good news is that our king, Jesus, is also going to do the same thing. Remember I said these are demonstrations of the future power of God, and you see that just in the way that the text is written. And I want to encourage you that Jesus Christ is the great king of Psalm 21. It's who we've been singing about all morning. And there is coming a time when he will break through and come back and deal with all of this. You should be making some connections between Psalm 21 and the second coming of Jesus Christ. We should have a longing in our heart when we read things like, you will destroy their descendants from the earth and their offspring from the children of man. Though they plan evil against you and devise mischief, they will not succeed for you will put them to flight. And you ought to look around the world and say, what is going on? God, put them to flight. And he will. Jesus is coming back. Did you know that? He's coming. I don't know when. You don't know when. But he is not coming back as a baby. He's coming back as a king. I thought of this text, Revelation chapter 19. It says this, Then I saw the heavens open. This is verse 11. And behold, a white horse, and the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. He has a name written that no one knows but himself. He's clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. This is obviously Jesus that we're talking about here, right? And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, 
King of kings and Lord of lords. Jesus is the great king of Psalm 21. He is the one who is coming back to deal with the enemies of God who plot and scheme and devise against you. There's great hope to be had here. There really is. And I just want to encourage you, the scriptures speak of these things. They speak of the return of Christ when he will come and set everything right. We sing about this kind of stuff. Do you remember the last verse of all creatures of our God and King? We sing that all the time and I love it. The last verse says, speaking of Christ, he will return in power to reign. Heaven and earth will join to sing. Oh, praise him. Hallelujah. Then who will fall on bended knee? What's the answer? All creatures of our God and King. And the question that you have to ask yourself this morning is when that day comes, will you willingly, joyfully, with anticipation bow before King Jesus? Or will you be the recipient of the rod of his judgment? There is only one hope for you to land on the right side of the covenant, my brothers and sisters. And it is to cast yourself upon the mercy of Christ. Come to him as the great king. He has provided a way for you to experience not his covenant wrath, not his covenant fury and angry against sin, but his covenant blessing because the great king has purchased it for you. Isn't that good news? Isn't that worth knowing? Jesus is coming back. And I don't say that to scare you. I don't want you to go home and huddle in your kitchen and toil and just be anxious about the end of the world. Look, the only thing you can do to prepare is set your heart right with Christ. You don't have to stockpile food and water and everything else getting ready for this. Jesus will come. He will do the right thing. He will judge the enemies of God and he will bring deliverance for his people. So if you are in Christ, if the blood of Jesus has washed you clean from your sin, then rejoice and worship God for his power. And if you do not know Jesus in that way, if you are familiar with him, but you don't know him in a saving way, repent. Come to him in faith. He will not turn you out. Our God is loving and he desires that we come to him. So take courage. Our great king has received the covenant blessings of the Lord. He has received blessing and honor and glory and majesty and now because of this he extends it to his people and we can have hope because of him. Let's pray as we come to the table. Father, again this morning we are reminded that in your faithfulness you always do what is right. As your people we do not have to wonder if you are doing the right thing. We do not have to wonder if there was a better option. Your purposes stand and your will shall be accomplished on the earth. Father, I pray that as we have looked this morning at this psalm and seen not only your covenant faithfulness in blessing, but also your covenant faithfulness in judgment, would we be reminded that the shield that we need, the protection from your wrath and judgment is none other than the blood of Jesus Christ which was shed on the cross for us. 
And for those who may be apart from you or maybe just straying from you, Lord, bring us back and remind us of the importance of being ready. We long for the day when things will be set right. We are frustrated and discouraged often at the state of our world, and yet you are not. You are not frustrated. You are not thrown off your plan, God. You are in total control. Please give us the grace to be able to recognize this and help us to worship you, God, not just for your goodness, but for your power in judgment. You are a great God, and we humble ourselves under you, and I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.